1 Timothy 6.6 says, Godliness with contentment is great gain, or it's of tremendous worth. Today, we have come to the end of Paul's letter to the church of Philippi that we have been studying over the course of the last few weeks. And there are two major themes that will make an appearance in these final verses that we're going to be looking at today. Contentment and generosity. Last time, we looked at several attitude adjusters that can help us live a rich, full, peaceful, joyful life regardless of the circumstances that we find ourselves in. We can't always change the circumstances of our life, but we can change our attitude and how we respond to those circumstances. And the first attitude adjuster that Paul gave us in that passage last week is found in Philippians 4.4 that says, Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again. Rejoice. We've noted that the letter of Philippians is often referred to as the letter of joy because joy is mentioned so much in this letter. The word joy in its various forms occurs some 16 times in this relatively short letter. A beautiful result of living a life of rejoicing in the Lord is contentment. A rejoicing person is a contented person. A beautiful expression of living a life of rejoicing in the Lord is generosity. A rejoicing person is a generous person. Living with a life attitude of rejoicing in the Lord produces contentment and generosity in a person's life. Well, let's flip over to Philippians chapter 4, verse 10, and we'll begin looking at this passage. It says, I rejoiced greatly in the Lord that at last you renewed your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned, but you had no opportunity to show it. Now, on the surface, it might sound initially like Paul is criticizing the Philippian Christians for a lapse in their support of him. That's not what's being communicated here. He's actually saying just the opposite. We need to remember that this is the first century. The means of travel and communication and information exchange were very primitive by today's standards. In those days, everyone, everyone was living off the grid all of the time. It was not uncommon to lose track of someone who was traveling, for example. In the case of Paul, who did a lot of traveling, moving from city to city all over the Mediterranean area, it would have been a challenge to keep track of Paul's whereabouts and be able to get in touch with him. He didn't have a blog that people could read. He didn't have a Facebook page or a mobile phone or an email address or any of the other ways that we take for granted in our own day for getting in touch with other peoples and keeping track of them. They would often have to wait for him to get in touch with them first in some way with a message delivered through somebody. Well, in this opening verse of this passage, Paul is expressing joy that he and the Philippians have been able to reconnect with one another after a considerable time. And they're able to once again send support to him as they had in the past. Verse 11, he says, I'm not saying this because I am in need. 
pause right there for a second. This is interesting. See, Paul, he's genuinely grateful for the support, financial support that the Philippian believers have sent to him via their courier, Epaphroditus, but he tells them that he's not in need, even though he obviously could use the financial support. I mean, he's living in Roman custody with just the bare essentials. There's no question that what the Philippians have sent him was extremely helpful. Paul's attitude, though, is in stark contrast with what we commonly encounter with people. We live in a consumer culture. Sellers pay advertisers to convince consumers that they need whatever it is that the seller is selling. Consumers accept the pitch that they can't be whole and happy without the thing that's being sold to them. And we, like sheep, being led to the slaughter, buy, buy, buy. We never have enough. We always need something else. In contrast, here's Paul saying he doesn't need anything, even though he has next to nothing. How can Paul say that he's not in need? Well, he begins to answer that question for us in the second half of the sentence in verse 11. He says here, I'm not saying this because I'm in need, for I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I've learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. Paul has learned to be content in whatever situation he's in, whether he's in an abundant situation or in a lacking I have nothing type situation. He wasn't born that way though. He was not a unique human being who was not a bottomless pit of want and desire like the rest of humanity. He was a garden variety human being. He learned to be content. And that implies that we too can learn to be content. Well, let's talk a little bit about contentment as we move through this. First, contentment for us begins with a firm belief in God's goodness. We have to be convinced that God's goodness towards us, God is good. He can be trusted. Whatever we're going through, whatever I have or don't have, never changes the fact that my Heavenly Father loves me and is taking care of me. See, look at Paul. He never suggests that his abundance or his lack are an indication of God's goodness or lack of goodness. God is always good, regardless of how much Paul has or doesn't have. If Paul didn't have something, he accepted it as coming from the good hand of the Lord as much as if he was blessed with an overabundance. He saw all of his circumstances as being under the control of the good hand of the Lord. God is good. This is a fundamental mindset that we need to have in order to be content. Underneath everything, our contentedness or lack of it is a reflection of our trust in the Lord and our belief in his goodness. Second, contentment is not apathy and indifference. 
It's not apathy and indifference. Some might argue that a contented person lacks motivation to better their self and their situation, that it's our discontent that provides the motivation, the drive to strive and reach for something better. But we don't observe that happening with Paul. He's as hard a working and deeply motivated as anybody. Well, what motivated Paul? It was not discontent. Rather, it was his pursuit of the call of the Lord that he had on his life, convinced about the goodness of God and what he has been given through Jesus Christ. See, the counter to apathy, lethargy, indifference about life is to see and embrace the mission and the call the Lord has on our life. We were created with a purpose, for a purpose. Let us pursue that purpose in every way that we can. That is where the sweet spot of life is found. The place of greatest joy and satisfaction in this life is found in walking in the purpose and the call that Jesus Christ has for us. You remember Ephesians 2.10? Paul wrote, For we are God's handiwork, or craftsmanship, or work of art, or masterpiece, created in Christ Jesus to do good works which God prepared in advance for us to do. Apathy is not contentment. Apathy is a failure to realize who we are in Christ. Third, contentment is not acquired by getting more stuff. Socrates said, He who is not contented with what he has would not be contented with what he would like to have. Now pause and think about that for a sec. He who is not contented with what he has right now would not be contented with what he would like to have. You get it? Contentment is not about the stuff. Paul says, he's known both abundance and lack. He has been well-fed and hungry. He has lived in plenty and he has lived in want. And he has learned to be content in all of those situations. The culture we live in tells us that the way to be content is to get enough stuff so that all of your wants are satisfied. That's a lie. In fact, it's one of the biggest lies that our culture ever tells us. It's impossible to get enough stuff so that our wants are met. The stuff of this world will never be able to fill that hole in our soul. It's not the kind of stuff our soul needs. Jeremiah Burroughs, the old Puritan preacher, wrote, My brethren, the reason why you have not got contentment is the things of the world of the things of the world, is not because you have not got enough of them. That's not the reason. But the reason is because they are not things proportionable to that immortal soul of yours that is capable of God himself. See, it's, it's like trying to satisfy the hunger of our stomach by eating air. Air is great for our lungs, but it doesn't do much for our stomach other than give us gas. 
Our soul isn't fed by the material stuff of this world. Trying to fill our soul with the material stuff of this world makes our soul sick and leaves us hungry. Rather than believing the lie of our culture, trying to find happiness and satisfaction and fulfillment by getting more and more stuff, we need to fill our life with the one thing that can really give us fulfillment, the Lord. We were made for a relationship with God, and only when we are in this relationship with God does our soul find that satisfaction. Again, Paul's the example for us. He says in verse 12, I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation. What's this secret that he's referring to? Jesus Christ. Look at the next verse, verse 13. He says, I can do all this through him, Jesus, who gives me strength. Paul's contentment is anchored in Jesus Christ. First, Jesus Christ is what has convinced Paul of God's goodness toward him so that he trusts God with his life, regardless of how how much he has or how much he doesn't have. He knows God loves him because Jesus gave his life for him. Romans 5.8, But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Well, we were still sinners, not when, when we finally got it together, but before we got it together, while we were a complete train wreck, God sent his son Jesus to die for us. 1 John 4, 9, this is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Paul knows God loves him. So he knows he can trust God with his life. Do you know that God loves you, really loves you, not just as some formal statement of theological truth, but as a real experiential life-affecting truth? You can trust God with your life because he loves you. Jesus Christ has filled Paul's soul in a way that stuff never can. No matter how much stuff he has or how little stuff he has, he's satisfied in the deepest part of his being because he is in relationship with God through Jesus Christ. This relationship with God, that's what's given him value and security and fulfillment. Stuff which he could never acquire through accomplishment or prestige or stuff in this world. Paul, he extends the importance of his relationship with God through Jesus when he says, I can do all things through him who gives me strength. Now, contrary to how some people have used this verse, Paul is not saying that Jesus Christ is the power source that he's tapped into to accomplish whatever he puts his mind to, as if Jesus were some kind of power amplifier to serve Paul. He's not saying that. Instead, Paul is saying that Jesus Christ is the enabling strength for him to do all that God has called Paul to do. All he really needs is found in Jesus Christ. And in the simplicity of that important truth, he's found strength to do whatever it is the Lord puts 
before him to do. Flip over to 2 Corinthians 12, verse 9. And we see a very similar idea being expressed here, which helps us to understand what Paul meet, means here in Philippians 4. He writes in 2 Corinthians 12, But he, God, said to me, Paul, My grace is sufficient for you, that my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses, so that Christ's power may rest on me. That's why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses and insults and hardships and persecutions and difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Paul's saying, I think of my weaknesses, my insults, my hardships, my persecutions, my difficulties as good things because I know that when I'm facing something that is beyond my own ability to handle, it means that the power of Christ is going to be working on me and in me and through me to carry me through this thing. It's the same idea that Paul is expressing in Philippians 4.13 when he says, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Our place of greatest strength is dependency on Jesus Christ. Well, Paul now returns in verse 14 to the thought that he started in verse 10, expressing gratitude to the Philippians for their generous financial support of him. In verse 14, he says, Yet it was good of you to share in my troubles. Moreover, as you Philippians know, in the early days of your acquaintance with the gospel when I set out from Macedonia not one church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving except you only for even when I was in Thessalonica you sent me aid more than once when I was in need not that I desire gifts what I desire is that more be credited to your account I have received full payment and have more than enough I am amply supplied now that I have received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent. They are a fragrant offering, an acceptable sacrifice, pleasing to God. The Philippians had always been a very generous church toward Paul and his ministry. Even when the church in Philippi was brand new, freshly established on Paul's second missionary journey, It says they were the one church from Macedonia to support him when he journeyed south into Greece to Athens and Corinth. Paul describes the generous giving of the church of Philippi in his second letter to the church at Corinth, using them as an example for the church at Corinth to follow in their own giving. Flip over to 2 Corinthians chapter 8 for a moment, and let's take a look at what Paul says there because it helps Fill in this picture for us. 2 Corinthians 8, verse 1, he says, And now, brothers and sisters, we want you to know about the grace that God has given the Macedonian churches. And Philippi was in Macedonia and is the church in Macedonia that Paul uh, typically highlights as an example for the other churches to follow. He says, in the midst of a very severe trial, their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. For I testify that they gave as much as they were able and even beyond their ability, entirely on their own, they urgently pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing in this service to the Lord's people. 
and they exceeded our expectations. They gave themselves, first of all, to the Lord, and then by the will of God also to us. It says they gave generously, even though they themselves were facing difficult times. They gave beyond their means, it says here, far more than could have been expected of them. And they weren't pressured into that giving. They, quote, urgently pleaded for the privilege of sharing in this service to the Lord's people. They gave of their own motivation. It wasn't because someone had laid some big old guilt trip on them, some big old sad story that some TV preacher had gone off about to squeeze every dollar out of the people that are watching. No, it wasn't anything like that. Paul didn't operate like that. These people were moved by the Holy Spirit, their own generous hearts. What inspires such generous giving from the people in the church of Philippi? Well, contentment and generosity are two sides of a common coin. They're expressions of a common attitude. In the same way that our contentedness or lack of it is a reflection of our trust in the Lord and our belief in His goodness, our generosity or lack of it is also a reflection of our trust in the Lord and our belief in His goodness. When we're really trusting the Lord to take care of us, then we're willing to share what we have with others, knowing that the Lord is going to continue to take care of us. And when we believe that every good thing in our life has come from the Lord, then we're willing to share it with others. We give to the things that we truly value and believe in. Believers in the church of Philippi, they gave to the work that Paul was doing because they truly valued it, believing that God was changing lives through the preaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Their own lives had been changed. They wanted to see that same kind of good work done in the lives of others. By supporting Paul financially, the Philippians were expressing their own gratitude in a tangible way to God for what God had done for them through Paul. Through their generous financial support of Paul's ministry, the Philippians were showing that they had vision for the kingdom of God. They were giving tangible resources to an intangible spiritual work. They're giving, it's a beautiful expression of faith in that way, see? What do you and I value and believe in? Our giving reflects what we really value and believe in. A lack of generosity can be a sign of insecurity and fear. A person can be materially wealthy and be considered financially secure by virtually anyone's standards, and yet they still hang on to every cent they have, fearing that they could lose it all and God will not take care of them. It's interesting to note that studies have shown that a person's wealth does not have a direct relationship to a person's generosity. Generosity has more to do with our heart than it does with the abundance or lack of our possessions. A lack of generosity can be a sign that a 
person doesn't know the true nature of God very well. The Lord is very generous to us. When we recognize how generous God is to us, it inspires our own generosity. Matthew 5.43, Jesus said, You've heard that it was said, Love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you that you may be children of your Father in heaven. He causes his Son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. Our Father in heaven does good to everyone. He's generous beyond description. And when we understand that, it inspires us to be generous too. The giving by the Philippians was a beautiful act of worship. Look at how Paul describes their gifts at the end of verse 18. He says, they were a fragrant offering, an acceptable sacrifice, pleasing to God. Our giving can be an expression of worship too, and it ought to be an expression of worship. When we give freely, it's an act of worship. When we give without ulterior motive, it's an act of worship. When we give generously, it's an act of worship. Lastly, there's a sense in all that Paul's writing here that that he's more interested in what this giving by the Philippians is doing for them than what it's doing for him. He's certainly benefiting from the financial support received from them. He's genuinely appreciative of the gifts, but he's clearly most grateful and excited about the good works that the Lord is doing in the lives of the Philippians, and their generosity is an expression of that good work that the Lord is doing in them. Increasing generosity in our life is evidence of our growth in the Lord. We're growing in our trust of the Lord, in our belief in His goodness. We're growing in our appreciation for the things of the Lord. We're becoming less self-centered and more Christ-centered. We're growing as worshipers of God. See, the practice of generosity is good for us. It matures us spiritually. It grows our character. We become more like Jesus through practicing generosity. See, stinginess shrinks our soul. Generosity grows our soul. Verse 19. And my God will meet all your needs according to the riches of His glory in Christ Jesus. We have this promise that God is going to take care of us. We can trust Him. And then Paul closes the letter. He says, To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Greet all God's people in Christ Jesus. The brothers and sisters who are with me send greetings. All God's people here send you greetings, especially those who belong to Caesar's household. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with your spirit. Amen. And amen. Let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you for this letter that Paul wrote to the believers in Philippi. And such important, helpful stuff for us in our own life with you, Lord. We pray that these things that we have learned from this letter are written indelibly on our hearts, Lord. 
And today in particular, we pray that we are content people, convinced of your goodness, Lord, filled with an overwhelming trust in you, knowing that you're taking care of us no matter what. And that we would share that with others, Lord, that we would be generous people as you are a generous God. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.